Hello and welcome to A View in Focus, the show where we talk with entrepreneurs from technology startups and high growth companies. We'll get to hear their stories about entrepreneurship, leadership, strategy, management, and fundraising. I'm your host, Dino De Palma, managing partner at True North Advisory, where we work alongside entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and PE firms as their strategic advisors. In today's episode, we have our guest, a longtime friend, Marty Falaro. Marty is the CEO and president of Wasabi Technologies. Marty, welcome to uh, the True North podcast uh, of You and Focus. Thanks. Great to have you. Thank you, Dino. Great to be here and uh, nice to talk to you again. Well, Marty, you and me have been friends for a long time. Uh, we went through uh, quite a, a career path, uh, both working at different companies, working together. Um, but before we get going, you know, one of the things I don't know about you after all these years of getting to know you, getting to know you, and I like to start with um, our audience to get to know our guest a little better. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your background, how you grew up, where you grew up, what you did, so so we get to know uh, Marty a little more intimately. Sure, Dino. I uh, grew up in uh, Connecticut, actually. I'm from Connecticut, and we uh, went. To, I went to school down there, and uh, in uh, the early '80s, uh, desiring to leave Connecticut, we decided to take a flyer and move to Boston, and. We thought we'd come up here for a couple of years, and uh, here we still are. So uh, almost uh, just past 40 years since we made the decision to move up here. But um, I live south of Boston in a little town called Situate, which is a seacoast town that I know you know. And uh, my tech career has mostly centered on uh, either large, fast-growing companies that are public or uh, venture-backed startups. I've got a good mix of both, and and it's really been a uh, a fun ride. And before we get into the career portion, uh, did you play any sports growing up? Like any music? Yeah, what I was, did. What was your thing? I was uh, I was a sports guy. I played uh, baseball and football right through high school days, and uh, now I uh, struggle but enjoy uh, playing golf uh, on the weekends and and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, no uh, college career in sports for me, but uh, just a frustrated golfer at this point. Yeah, that makes both of us. Some days are good, some <laughs> days are not so good. But hey, when you're exactly. on the golf course, how, how bad can it be, Marty? Exactly right, Dino. Uh, so, you know, let, let's get into uh, maybe the roles that you've had. Uh, walk us through some of the, the key roles that you've had through your career and how you progressed through them. I think it's good for sure. our listeners to to learn what it takes to be at your level today and what that career path is and some of the struggles you might have encountered. Sure, Dino. Uh, So my earliest career uh, started in sales, actually. And uh, I I would say if I had to characterize my long career, it would be mostly in customer-facing roles. So sales and business development, channel sales, all variations of the same thing, facing the market, helping uh, customers solve problems uh, has been pretty much the hallmark. I started as a typical sales guy selling products to end customers. Uh, in I got into tech uh, really when I came to Boston and uh, had the opportunity to 
join at the time one of the fastest growing tech software companies in Cambridge called Lotus Development, which is acquired later by IBM. But uh, my career at the beginning, uh, and even to this day, um, has been characterized by customer-facing kinds of roles, which I really loved. And, uh, you know, even in my current role, I've been able to take advantage of the fact that I've got so much experience uh, dealing with customers and helping them solve issues. So it's uh, it's been a great ride. No, definitely an impressive career. And, and, and I've also seen, you know, most recently on LinkedIn and different social media that you've been teaching classes, uh, been a guest lecturer mm. at Harvard and, and other universities. You know, I, I'm always amazed that uh, you take it, you have a business degree or an MBA, and I'm sure you like me. One of the things they never teach us is sales, or they never teach us about channel building. Uh, what are your thoughts of, uh, about that? I'll digress a little, but just from a learning perspective on how colleges could do a little better in preparing the sales force uh, for, for, their, for their journey. It's never part of the business curriculum. You're right, Dino. And it's funny you say that. I went to uh, uh, receive my MBA from Fordham University in New York in the, uh, in the 80s even. And pretty much when you get an MBA at most schools, including Harvard Business School, uh, and I've also lectured at BU Questrom School and uh, MIT uh, Sloan School. And uh, when you get that degree, they teach you everything there is to know about running a business, starting a business, the financial aspects of it, the marketing aspects of it, the management aspects. But there was literally no sales courses. And one of the professors at Harvard Business School also recognized that at, you know, at that amazing institution. And so they started a entrepreneurial sales course a few years ago, and uh, it got an immediate reaction from the uh, students to the point where I think they've been running it now, Dino, for about five years. And they told me this year, I've, I've been fortunate to be invited in to be a guest lecturer uh, three or four times now. And they told me this year that it's so popular that they've uh, made it a tier one course with, I think they had almost a hundred students on the uh, waiting list this year. So next year they'll triple the size of it and add a sec second segment. So there's definite interest and, uh, uh, but it's just never been part of the core curriculum for some reason. Yeah, I, I've been thinking the same thing. I do work for uh, McGill where I went to school and yep. uh, chatting with the uh, the dean as, as well and at Salem State. So uh, I, I think there's definitely some 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 work to be be done there. So when we talk about yeah. go to market and building a sales uh, go to market BD organization, Marty, what do you look for? Like what? Like how do you know? I mean, hiring is a is really challenging, especially in today's world. What do you look for? How do you know how to build your team? Give us some some useful insights on, you know, for someone who's building out a team at a startup or a larger company, uh, how, do, how do they get going? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's it varies by product a little bit, but I'll focus it on, you know, tech-related products, uh, you know, since probably most of the audience is familiar with that. Um, and I'll use the you know, I've been on board with Wasabi uh, for six years now, and I'll use Wasabi as a good example. 
I joined right when the product was about to be launched. And I use the word product, but it's really a cloud storage service. And we'll talk about it, I'm sure, at some point. But what I was looking at when I started as the first sales guy in, in a company of 15 people, was how do we reach customers? Who are the customers? What kind of an organization can we start to build to go after customers? And so one of the big decisions that I made early on was that we needed to initially sell directly to these customers, whoever they might be, so that we could get an understanding of what their needs were, what problems they were trying to solve. And we had an eye on wanting to use distribution channels but initially, we focused on direct engagement with customers. And I also used a um, earlier in their career sales team to reach customers using uh, what we call inside sales initially, because the good news about a product like cloud storage is customers generally know what cloud storage is. What they don't know is what you offer as a company. So what we decided to do, and we've done it very successfully, is we've decided to go after not people fresh out of college, I'll say, but people that had two or three years of selling experience, usually for Oracle, IBM, Dell, one of the bigger companies who do a great job of giving people fundamental sales skills right out of college. And so our initial move was hire that kind of a team have them focus on direct customer engagement and really drive forward that way. And it was quite successful. Uh, now we're over 300 people and we've added in a whole range of experienced people, uh, whether it's, um, you know, leadership in the sales organization or um, account managers. Uh, we have channel managers now. All of these people have a mixture of uh, experience, but that initial core team that we started with and the selling direct to customers for about 18 months taught us so much about how to uh, reach customers and what messaging to use that it was it was really a good model for us. So is, is your view, Marty, that you need a balance of direct and channel, but the best way to get what the customer needs is to ask them directly. Am, am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, I would say a little slight, like slightly different wording. I think when you first start, let's say you're considering becoming a sales leader in a, in a startup that hasn't sold anything yet, which is what our situation was in 2017. I think it's critical that you talk directly to the customers uh, for a period of time because the, Distribution channels are amazing, and as you know, Dino, they really help you scale your business, um, but they're not going to make a market for your product. You need to do that yourself with your own team and feed that information back to uh, the product organization, engineering, uh, marketing, so you can develop the right messages. Those channels, in my experience, having been dealing with them since the beginning of my tech career, don't like to make markets. They like to go in and help hot companies reach markets and scale faster, but only after there's demand for the product. So it's it's kind of a nuance, but it it taught us a lot. And we didn't enter the channel business, uh, building out a channel program until a full 18 months after we launched the service. So going into 2019, 
we said, hey, we're going to expand outside of the U.S. Most of the business is done through channels, as you know, outside the U.S. And we said, if we're going to do that, let's launch a channel organization globally, including inside the U.S. And so we did that. No, I think that that's well said. Uh, another area of selling that I'm curious your thoughts about that's definitely changed um, since even the time we were together at Packme Packet uh, is social media, uh, all the different uh, tools Absolutely. that are available to us. What are your thoughts around how that's changed the selling process? Uh, I see you on LinkedIn often, for example. Walk mm -hmm. us through how you think uh, sales and BD organizations should think about uh, their social media play and, and how to leverage it in a way that gives them greater impact. You know, it's funny you mentioned this, Dino, but I can think back to maybe less than 10 years ago, but let's call it 10 years ago when we weren't really even using social media. It was just really getting going with LinkedIn and uh, Instagram and Facebook and, you know, all different um, platforms that are now out there. And we literally ignored that as a selling tool initially. Uh, but at, at Wasabi, uh, we didn't do that. We embraced it. Uh, and we, we actually made it part of the sales process. So in addition to uh, all of the great traditional selling that goes on, we added uh, the use of social media to reach customers, to send messages uh, out to customers. And so our entire sales and marketing organization, our regular uh, users of social media platforms, uh, you know, largely LinkedIn, but amazingly, um, to reach certain buyers, you can definitely also get them uh, on Instagram where we have uh, a platform, you know, we have our own Instagram page, not only as a company, but the individual salespeople are all using it. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, LinkedIn is the other big one, but it kind of skews by age, as you know. You know, LinkedIn is a business platform, which is amazingly successful. I primarily focus on that, but the company also has uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook accounts, and we get a lot of leads from post work that we do there. But I think sales teams and marketing teams can get so much leverage out of embracing uh, these social media platforms now in the last 10 years versus the prior 10 years when it wasn't really a tool. You know, LinkedIn was really just getting started at that point as a, as a business platform. Uh, but we, we leverage it and we teach our teams how to leverage it. Yeah, definitely, definitely a changing world. You also mentioned uh, tools and there's, you know, in, in the sales enablement world right now, there are many companies that help you analyze your forecast. I mean, it's way yep. in above beyond uh, the likes of Salesforce, although they do a great job, but th there's a lot of tech there that, that sort of helps you understand, let's call it your funnel and your forecast uh, yep. through analytics and through basic data. What are your thoughts around leveraging those types of tools? And when do you bring sort mm -hmm. of the, the Marty barometer on that says, ah, this is, this is all great, but we might have an issue here. What's what's the balance between that? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Dino. You know, like most companies, <clears throat> when you're really small, again, just using uh, Wasabi as a as a uh, example, we did what everybody does, which is we said, you know, let's do forecasts, let's start with uh, spreadsheets, blah blah blah. 
But we quickly realized, and literally quick as in in the first few months, that there was no way we could keep track of all the information we had. And so we, we used the CRM. We happened to choose HubSpot at the time, which was a perfect platform for a small company. And we chose both their CRM and their marketing platform, which are very successfully linked together, as you know. And they were growing very rapidly uh, back in 2017. They were already a, a very large player in the space, but they focused on small businesses, uh, primarily in tech. So we leveraged that platform and we made it the source of truth. And I use that term because it's super important that there's one single source of truth, as you know, for everything, who the customers are, what you're talking to them about, what your marketing campaigns are going to be, uh, everything that you do electronically. We use it as a, uh, you know, sort of a, a gathering spot for all of our information. And uh, when you're growing fast, if you don't have one place where you can go to look at information, it makes it doubly difficult. So whatever the CRM choice is, and there's a lot of good ones out there, uh, it's super important that you get us, uh, you know, make that decision at the beginning and really get going. We chose HubSpot initially, but now, you know, as a, as a company of approaching 350 people, we just migrated this month to Salesforce because Salesforce is great for scale. It's, it also knows, uh, about channels of distribution and it has integration. Uh, that lets you manage your channels and your direct team uh, on a single platform. So we believe in this source of truth concept and everything we do is in Salesforce. I, I like that uh, terminology. I might steal it from, from you, uh, Marty, mm -hmm. but I'll give, I, I'll give you credit, I promise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, switching a little on uh, topic, and, and I think you've, you've delivered some great insights. Uh, one of the challenges and one of the opportunities when you're in a startup environment you talked about you know being the first go-to-market salesperson at, at wasabi you've done that multiple times in your mm -hmm. uh, your career how do you create a culture and motivate the teams in, in a positive way especially in a startup environment where we all know we have challenges it's not uh, just uh, it's, it's not sunshine every day. There, there's mm -hmm. some good times and some not good, so good times, as the the preacher Mary Annalisa and I would, uh, would would say. You know, how do you motivate folks? What, what's how do you build that culture that's so important in every company, but really in a startup environment? I think it's what helps make the the, the difference. How, how do you view that, Marty? Yeah, Dino, that's a great question. Startups uh, are obviously not for everybody. But I've found them to be such an incredible uh, place to learn and grow uh, that I really have enjoyed them. Um, but for me, the culture goes back to, you know, a pretty much you can't say I want to have a culture and then you just, you know, pick it out of a book and say this is what we're going to do. For us, you know, the culture of Wasabi is one of, you know, openness. Uh, we have a lot of very smart people and we try and leverage everybody's opinions and everybody's experiences to help our business grow. Uh, we treat people fairly. Uh, we offer opportunity. And I think those three words, you know, openness, fairness, and opportunity are really uh, at the core of a great culture. And so we've, 
you know, strived for that. But the other, if I turn it a little bit onto a sales orientation, uh, we believe, and this is something I've believed since day one in the concept of player coach. So initially we started out with me and then I added a couple people. Then we added a couple more people, but all of our managers, uh, even me up until recently are, uh, player coaches. And by that, I mean, they're, they're keeping some of their own accounts. They're engaged directly in the sales process personally in addition to leading teams. And the reason we do that is because we believe that in a lot of companies, managers are selected, you know, from who your best salesperson is. And then all of a sudden they no longer are selling. And in a small company, you lose that asset because now they're managing and maybe they're going to be a good manager. And that's certainly important, but we believe in the player coach concept in a startup. And we, to this day have people across lots of different levels all the way up to the VPs uh, in sales and BD and channels that are managing some of their own accounts in addition to leading the team. I, I think you and me have that in our DNA. I also think it's yep. because we, we, we like meeting with customers and we it's do. Hard, to, hard to give it up. Uh, you know, you talked about managing and, and your, your style. One of the areas that Wasabi faced and we certainly face at other companies you and me have, have worked together at is a global organization uh, yep. where you have people all over the world. How do you maintain that culture? How do you manage a global sales team, global BD team? How do you structure that, Marty? Because it's certainly not easy and curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, thanks, uh, Dino. We, so we've gone from a small team in the U.S. to a medium-sized team in the U.S. to a large team in the U.S to a same thing in Europe and, uh, and in now in Asia. And for me, the most critical ingredient is getting the right person to lead the, uh, you know, the region, so to speak. And so we have two leaders in North America that are phenomenal. And they've been here, uh, one of them's been here since the beginning. She was actually the first person that I brought in after I was hired. And now she's the VP of North America Sales. She's done an amazing job. Uh, we also have, uh, for the cultural aspects of things, when you start looking outside the U.S., it's a little easier inside the U.S. because we're, you know, living here and we understand the culture. But it's really important to have a local culture, even though you have kind of a global approach. It's really important to localize it to leverage uh, the strengths of different countries and the people that live in those countries and sort of the work rules that go on. So. We look for really strong leaders of the geographic regions who can then bring in small teams because we're still small in all of our uh, our sales offices, but small teams that can work well together that understand how to build a local culture. And we've done that in Europe and Asia because at the end of the day, you know, the activities are happening in countries. Uh, and when you're sitting in Boston trying to figure out how to build a culture in Paris or London or Frankfurt, where we have people, or even Tunisia, where we have an inside sales team, you can't do it from your seat in Boston. So it's really important that you establish the global sort of culture, if you will, and then let let it happen in, in the local markets. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that for sure. And then Part of that, I mean, I'm curious how you manage through it. 
is as the organization grows, you know, I remember my day, early days at Acme Packet, I knew everyone, worked with everybody. It was really easy to get feedback. As the organization grows, what mechanisms would you encourage, suggest uh, leaders to have in place so they get real feedback, not just feedback that, you know, people think they want to hear, uh, which, you know, when you go from 15 to 200 to 1,000 people, just becomes more challenging. Curious your thoughts around that. Yeah, Dino, and that's a uh, real challenge because throw the pandemic into the mix, right? None of us uh, in our Acme days ever even contemplated what happened in the last three or four years uh, when the world, uh, you know, went through that pandemic, which is, you know, still partially going on in some places. That makes it doubly difficult because now people, you know, less than 50%, I just read this this morning in the Wall Street Journal, still worldwide, less than 50% of uh, workers are working from offices. And, you know, that's, that's a huge change. If we wrote that article uh, five years ago, even, uh, it would be 90% are working from offices. So, you know, staying in touch with people and, you know, uh, having the right kind of relationship structure is doubly difficult when people are remote. But in effect, you know, everybody's going through the same experience. So I think it's super important to communicate at all levels regularly. And you're right. We don't I don't know every single person, uh, but we do sales kickoffs. We do road shows. We get out and, and meet folks. We have tons and tons of uh, video calls where you kind of feel like you're getting to know somebody because you're literally looking right at them. And uh, so we over communicate uh, with the teams, um, both in the markets that we're in and uh, on a global basis, just to keep everybody informed in what's going on. But yeah, it's complicated these days with uh, that stat of less than 50% of people in offices. Um, but you just have to work at it. Yeah, there's no there's no magic around that for sure. Uh, you know, as, as we think of, of, of wrapping up, maybe tell us a little bit of Wasabi, you know, what you guys are doing, yeah. where you're thinking of going. Sure. Um, always interested to hear. Yeah, thanks, Dino. We, so Wasabi is a cloud storage provider. So at the highest level, we provide the same cloud serv- storage services as AWS. Uh, the most popular one that they have is called S3. We provide that same type of cloud storage to small, medium, and large companies uh, and universities and governments and, and a whole host of customers. But we do it with a very simple pricing model that's 80% lower than AWS. And we have uh, built our own technology stack. So our, our experience for customers the performance is is fantastic, and the data is as safe as the hyperscalers at a fraction of the cost. So it's very low cost, high performance, safe cloud storage, and it's available globally in 13 countries. Uh, and uh, we we actually serve out of those 13 locations about 100 countries, um, and you can get it in a variety of ways. You can either consume it and then pay for it every 30 days, or you can buy a reserved capacity storage uh, SKU, so to speak. So you can buy a fixed amount of storage for a fixed duration for a lower price. And uh, so that's what we do. We sell, we we went from 
zero customers in 2017 to now we've got close to 52,000 customers and we went from zero distribution channels in 2019 to now we have more than 20,000 uh, resellers worldwide. So it's been a really successful business because we provide a service that people are used to, but at a fraction of the cost. Well, Marty, exciting. You're definitely doing an amazing um, work at Wasabi. And um, I feel privileged to have you as a very close friend and and uh, a colleague or former colleague. It, it was uh, a joy working with you. Um, and, and as I said, you know, the privilege of, of having you as, uh, as a close friend. I appreciate you joining us uh, today. You certainly provided some amazing insights, uh, you know, which are inclusive of Make sure early on you're speaking to your customers directly to truly understand what their needs are prior to doing a whole uh, outreach program through partners. Important to, to really understand the market and that uh, you need to have a single source of truth. I'd really love that comment as well. Understand your numbers, understand where you are and figure out your social media strategy. So I, I think for our audience and anyone listening, there are a lot of really good nuggets here. And I could go on speaking to you for easily another hour plus. Uh, we, we just started to dig at it, uh, but we're excited for you to be here today. Stay tuned for our next episode. Uh, we'll be posting our episodes every other week and please follow us on LinkedIn. So Marty Polero, our guest, thank you so much again. And I look forward to playing some golf with you real soon. Thank you, Dino. And I appreciate the kind words and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.